0: The Double K Super Show was filmed in front of a live audience. Welcome to the podcast that no one demanded. You are listening to the very first ever episode of The Double K Super Show. I'm Chris Karam, a.k.a. Chris
1: Karam. I'm Mark Konzorowski. You can call me Mr. K. (laughs) The celebrated Mr. K.? He's one and only. <laughs> What's the show going to be about? What's
0: it all about, you're probably asking yourself, if you're still listening after all this time. Well, for that, I'm going to turn you over to my partner in crime, Mr. Mark Konzarowski. Mark, take it away.
1: Well, we're two middle-aged madmen, um, slowly entering an uncomfortable statler and Baldorf existence. Um, we love 70s and 80s music. We pretty much hate everything else. And so the focus of our show will naturally be Gen X culture.
0: Yes, Gen X culture, such as it is. I mean, we, you know, we're not going to just do music. I mean, we may do movies or other media, but I think our primary focus is going to be music, such as we see it. That's correct.
1: And to get started, we're going to start off with one of the most um, unasked for, uncelebrated, yet oddly enduring platters of that very uncomfortable time of transition, 1979 moving into 1980 yes we're talking about unmasked yes we are and
0: that was a pivotal album for me as a kiss fan because it marked a turning point where i turned away from kiss for a while
1: you turned away from kiss
0: yeah i'll get into that but uh let's let's do a little biographical information about the album first the album came out on may 20th 1980 on casablanca records But it almost didn't come out on Casablanca Records. Ask me why, Mark.
1: Well, I believe it had something to do with the famous founder of the label, Mr. Bogart, absconding with a golden parachute.
0: Basically, yeah. What happened was that Neil Bogart was the founder of their record company, Casablanca. And in 77, Polygram bought a half interest in the company with the goal over five years to eventually get 100% of the company. Well... Three years in, they realized that, you know, Neil Bogart was robbing them blind and he was really mismanaging the company in terms of uh, finances. So they booted him out the door. What Polygram did not realize, however, was that there was a key man clause in Kiss's contract that said Neil Bogart had to be owner of the company or be involved with it to some extent. And since he wasn't, they advised Polygram. They gave him 60 days notice to say, we're going to seek out another
1: record company. Trouble in paradise.
0: Yeah, But the thing was, they were just coming off of Dynasty, an album which, you know, did reasonably well in the States. I think it went platinum, but all over the world, I Was Made for Loving You was a huge hit. So Polygram did not want to lose Kiss, and they were also in the process of losing Donna Summer as well, but that's another uh, topic for another podcast.
1: That's true. Um, By all accounts, Dynasty was their international breakthrough they had become stars in in the United States over the past two years. I was made for love. And was pretty much the group's one absolutely international hit.
0: Yes. And you know, they had, they were established in the States, obviously, obviously if you were around back in 77, 78, like we were, you knew how big kiss was, but by 79, uh, there were cracks in the grease paint, so to speak. and, the group was actually on a downward slide, both internally and externally. I mean, the, the Dynasty Tour was marked by shows that weren't selling out. Uh, there were instances where they thought there were going to be multiple shows, and they only ended up having maybe one or two at most. So, And, you know, obviously the Peter Criss situation was rearing its ugly head, so that didn't help
1: either. Yes, the Ayatollah of Rockarola.
0: Actually, the Ayatollah of Cola, but you're right,
1: yeah. Ayatollah Cola. Um, Many famous bootleg recordings, which can be searched out in YouTube, uh, contain language that is not family-friendly and should thus be avoided by minors, if there are any listening to this episode.
0: Yeah, I think it was either Podkist or History Science Theater. They actually provided some excerpts of the raw audio from the Dynasty tour rehearsals or the album rehearsals. And Peter was clearly out of control, no pun intended, by that point.
1: He absolutely was. Um, and, of course, you know, Peter is not even present on the Unmasked album.
0: That's right. You know, they, by this point, they had decided to part ways with him. And from all accounts, even Ace Frehley signed off on that.
1: That's true. Um, Peter still regards that as a massive betrayal. If you read his book, and by the way, don't read his book. <laughs> yeah, don't, well, don't read, don't read Makeup to Breakup.
0: Actually, I think it's actually one of the better of the Kiss biographies, only for the fact that at least he tells you some stuff. If you've read Aces or Jeans, it's like, okay, where's the rest of this?
1: Well, that's true. I mean, Paul's book is fairly honest, if you accept that it's from Paul's point of view. Peter's Peter's book is similarly honest from Peter's point of view. It's just that of the two that I'd rather have a conversation with, I'd probably rather have a conversation with Narcissus Paul rather than Nealist Peter.
0: Yeah, you'd probably walk away from a conversation with Paul going, okay, that guy's got some issues, rather than with Peter, where you'd want to slit your wrists and just want to end it there.
1: I believe uh, Ace referred to it as a rope and a stool.
0: <laughs> True, and maybe at some point we'll do a show on the KISS autobiographies, but why don't we get into Unmasked, and uh, what's your experience with it, uh, Mark? What, what? How did you discover it?
1: I discovered it fresh out of the box um I got on board with kiss around six or seven years old. I had the lunch- I definitely had the lunch box in seventy seven so I had already been a seasoned fan of three years, and I wasn't even ten years old at the time.
0: It's interesting because I was also a seasoned fan of three years old i mean of three years at that point. But I was a little bit older than you, so, you know, I think I was probably a little more, I don't know, keyed into it via like stuff like 16 Magazine and Hit Parader and stuff like that.
1: Yeah, I was just beginning to enter that phase where, you know, I was beginning to notice copies of Cream and Hit Parader next to Mad and Cracked. I was just getting to that point. I I, I was nine years old in 1980. Okay.
0: Yeah, I was four, I was 13 going on 14. Um, so my story is interesting. I, it was probably around May of 1980. And after school one day, I ran into this kid and he told me, hey, do you hear that Peter Chris left Kiss? And I'm like, really? I haven't." I, and I hadn't heard anything at that point. So I kind of went, hmm, I didn't really pay too much heed to it. Then a couple of weeks later or so, uh, I get unmasked. And I'm like, well, he's, he hasn't left the band. He's on the album cover. What an idiot.
1: (laughs) That's true. At the time, I don't think any of us realized or were old enough to realize that it really wasn't Peter Drummond on the album. Um, Anton Figg plays on Dynasty and Unmasked, except for one song on Dynasty, we all know what it is. It's that dirty living disco ditty. That's
0: right. And the interesting thing was I didn't have the faculty, not only – I didn't have the critical faculty to say – hey, wait a minute, that's not Peter's drawing, and it never dawned on me that Peter didn't have a single lead vocal on the album. That should have been the tip-off.
1: That's true. I mean, the, the winking thing, I think people make a little bit much out of it in retrospect. I don't think it was really much of a tip-off, because, I mean, Gene had the tongue thing, so why shouldn't Peter wink? You know, it was, it was taken, it was a very, very, very inside joke.
0: Well, you know, conspiracy theories have existed long before the present day. And, of course, with Kiss, there's, you know, for everything that's happened, there's at least ten sides of the coin to
1: take uh, heed of. That's true. Paul is dead. Peter's quit. That kind of thing.
0: I I think Ace died a long time ago.
1: They just replaced
0: him with Tommy Thayer. Oops, did I say that?
1: Bad, Chris.
0: That's bad. Yeah, you know, we should never invoke the name of the fake fake spaceman on this show.
1: No, definitely definitely no uh what is what is it, fake ace and cheater Chris as Rapiera <laughs> calls them.
0: I haven't heard that, but I I like that though.
1: I like that. But anyhow a lot of people thought that the entire KISS had been replaced because everybody was going This ain't KISS. Where's the rock and roll? Well, you got to you got to figure
0: on um, Dynasty was an, you know, a big hit, especially like you say internationally. So, of course they're going to bring back uh Vinnie Poncia as the producer because if you've just had a massive hit whether it's disco or pop or whatever you want to call it, you're going to bring the guy back.
1: I think Vinnie also earned Stripes of the Band by firing Peter Chris. Yeah, it's pretty bad when the
0: guy who producer or solo album who the you know the manager brought in just to appease you and to make you feel better. He decides you're not good enough to play on the album. That's pretty
1: bad. Yeah that should be your first tip off something something's rotten in Denmark. But Peter bean Peter didn't quite get the message and so sometime during the making of Unmasked or shortly afterwards he was given a boot. Now of course he does appear in the in the video for Shandy
0: He was actually given the boot, I think, before the album started, they started recording it, or shortly after, like, they started recording it. I don't think he was a factor. In fact, there's a story going around that, um, and Bill Ocklein, their their, uh, former manager who passed away in 2010, he said that after "Unmasked" was recorded, they decided to have one more rehearsal to see if they could make it work with Peter, and apparently he showed up with um, Music Stand and sheet music, and claimed that he'd been taking drum lessons.
1: Apparently not good enough, because Eric Carr was definitely in the picture very shortly afterwards. However, it is Anton Fig on the album.
0: That's right, and, you know, let's face it, you can say what you want about this album, whether you like it or you're not, but Anton Fig, he's the man.
1: He's a monster. And there's another
0: story that supposedly Ace said to him at one point, hey, do you want to be in the band? And Anton was like, okay, sure. Uh,
1: there was just one problem. He hadn't checked this with Gene and Paul. That's true. Uh, apparently, the story is that Ace called Anton and said, "You could be in the band." Two hours later, he called back. "You're in the band." Twenty-four hours later, he called back. "You're not in the band."
0: Uh, you know, and I and I can only imagine that poor Anton Fig must have been like, "What the hell? What the hell is this crap?" but apparently it didn't you know sour him too much because he would later play on uh Fraley's Comet albums and be still be Ace's friend up till actually i think um i think Ace played on one of Anton Fig's albums a while back so
1: that's true in fact i believe that Eric Carr even um helped Ace audition drummers when he was attempting to put Fraley's Comet together so Ace does keep in touch with drummers other than Peter in fact, it I helps understand. to not be Peter.
0: I actually think he kept more in touch with Eric Carr than he did Peter. I think the the whole thing about them being best buddies is really a myth because if they were such best buddies, why didn't Ace hire Peter to play on Fraley's Comet or any one of his albums?
1: Yeah, I don't want to get off into a whole lot of Peter Chris bashing, but yeah, there's definitely a reason that that Ace hung out with Eric Carr and Anton Fig, and even Eric Singer for that matter.
0: Yep. And speaking of that, why don't we get into a discussion about Unmasked? We'll do a track-by-track, and we'll offer our thoughts and associated trivia.
1: That sounds good. Uh, The first track is Is That You, a New Wave Classic?
0: It was actually an outside songwriter by the name of Gerard McMahon who wrote this uh, song. And I've often wondered why they used material from an outside songwriter, especially where he didn't collaborate with Gina Paul. And the only thing I can think of is that Vinnie Poncia being a producer must have uh, been given the demo or something.
1: It's probably what happened. Uh, When you think about it, though, Is That You is the exact kind of song that is indicative of the New York rock and roll trend of the time, which was not punk. Punk was very much Greenwich Village. Uh, Ramones were punk, whereas something like Blondie... Was played at Studio 54. Blondie was New Wave, and so is that you. Is kind of splitting, splitting the difference between the two extremes, uh, coming coming up with something that's edgy but still very you know polished. It, it's power pop. It's, it's Kiss's take on power pop.
0: Yes. Now, have you, the original demo is actually out there. You can actually get it on YouTube. Have you heard it?
1: Yes, I have. It's um, it's about a minute longer. It's a little bit, of course, less polished. It is a demo, and he says a couple of naughty words that Paul Stanley doesn't choose to replicate.
0: Well, back then they really couldn't because their audience at that point was the 16 magazine crowd. But what's interesting about that, I and maybe this is because I'd heard Kiss's version, you know, long before Gerard McMahon's, and you know, many times is that I think the Kiss version really. Distills it down to its essence and keeps it on on point. I I think it's I like it a lot. I enjoy it, and I have to admit that in 1980, to hear somebody say bitch on a record was uh, almost verging on scandalous.
1: It's true. Right around that time, the Rolling Stones had a She's So Cold. Remember, She's So Cold. She's So Goddamn Cold.
0: Yeah, I remember that song. I actually owned the 45 of that, and that was another. Yeah, again, another record from the summer of
1: 1980. <laughs> and, of course, uh, The Knack had a song out. She's So Selfish. Do you remember that one?
0: Yeah, yeah, I do remember that one. Of course, you know, well, <laughs> we're going to have to do like a 1979 show just to cover The Knack and all these other bands.
1: <laughs> Anyhow, um, another album that was out at that time was um, Linda Ronstadt offering her take on on new wave music. Um was it mad it was mad love or get closer i always get the two mixed up
0: no it was mad love and the song was how do i make you and that was for that time that was a very provocative title it's kind of antiquated because how do i make you basically means i want to do you
1: that's absolutely what it means and and kids knew what it meant at the time but it was coded enough to where parents would be like oh well, Oh, that's cute do you want to do my makeup yeah well the
0: thing with and of course it's that thing where you say how do i make you and then there's like a a little pregnant pause and then she goes dream about me so she kind of she kind of takes it back from the edge
1: yeah i mean it is that you is is kind of i don't want to say it has no balls i mean we're not going there but it is very much you know polished power pop slash new wave it's Edgy, but at the same time, it's it's a lot tamer than you know the kiss that we're used to. It's more, as you say, um, radio friendly, and that was where a lot of kids who were at that point discovering Judas Priest and Van Halen were, of course, beginning to get off the bus.
0: Yes, and actually, you just reminded me of uh speaking of getting off the bus. I sort of got off the bus when it came to this album. And I'll explain it thusly. When I bought this album, of course, I was very excited. Brand new Kiss album. Wow, this is great. I'm really excited. But what happened was something that never happened before with a Kiss album. And with each successive listen, I liked it less and less. I was like, this is pop. This is wimpy. This doesn't sound like – was gonna say, i I'm going to say Led Zeppelin because I had discovered Led Zeppelin the year prior, and they were becoming more and more of a, a dominant kind of band in my listening habits. So Kiss doing Unmasked at this point – Was just heresy. And it's funny because you consider what a difference a year makes. A year earlier, Dynasty came out with more or less the same sound, you know, a a sort of power pop, you know, glossy production. And yet that didn't bother me.
1: Well, they they struck a balance with Dynasty that, you know, they, yes, it was very polished. The guitars were very bright. The drums were very bright. It was very mid rangey. At the same time, though, the guitar solos were kept in, whereas by the time Unmask came around, a, a lot of that guitar edge had been filtered out.
0: Yeah, I mean, Is That You doesn't even have a proper solo. It just has like a a kind of almost like a sort of chordal part or just like a like I, I'm almost willing to bet that Paul played lead guitar on that song because it doesn't sound like Ace. Ace would have done even if it was just a short little trill or something, he would have done something that had an Aceism in it.
1: Yeah, I seriously doubt that Ace or Gene are even present on that number, except maybe the backing vocals.
0: Well, that's as good a lead-in as any to track two, which is Shandy. And, of course, you know as well as I do that uh, the only member of KISS on Shandy is Paul Stanley.
1: That's correct. Um, Shandy is Paul's big, um, I don't know, lost love. I won't say unrequited love. Obviously, it's the end of an affair. It's this big, regretful one night, one last one night stand, and then we got to call it quits, babe.
0: I could hear this song done by Michael McDonald. This sounds to me like a prime, you know, Doobie Brothers song or Michael McDonald solo track. It's got that kind of pop sheen to it, and the vocals have that, you know, neo soul kind of thing going on.
1: I hear that. It is definitely a late seventies R&B type of number. Although uh, my understanding is, quarterly speaking, a lot of it is is cribbed off a of Joe Walsh number called Tomorrow.
0: If you've ever heard the intro to Tomorrow, you you would uh, not question it because I actually have that uh, CD, and I've heard that song, and the the beginning of it is very much the same as the intro to Shandy.
1: That's true. It's on the, um, if anybody's interested, that's on the But Seriously Folks album.
0: Available at Fine Stores near you. Yeah. And, you know, what's interesting, obviously, is that um, Anton Fink plays drums, obviously. Holly Knight, who would later go on to become a very big uh, songwriter for a lot of pop acts, played keyboards. And then Gene called in sick to the studio that day. So they took a. Uh, the, one of their roadies, a guy by the name of Tom Harper, I believe, and they said, okay, you're playing bass on this. And I I find that interesting because Gene is always calling out Ace and Peter for not showing up or not playing on this recording or whatever. Yet in the 80s, I don't think Gene played on half the stuff that had the Kiss name on it.
1: That's absolutely true. I think if Gene didn't write the song, he basically was not interested in being there. And I also think that the famous, uh, whatever you can call it, Gene Diaspora or absence of Gene began a lot sooner than people think it did.
0: Well, my guess is that him calling in sick was he was spending the night with either Cher or Diana Ross and didn't feel like going in.
1: I think that's safe to say. He's probably um, eyeballing a movie script that somebody at Casablanca had forwarded to him.
0: You're probably right on that. And it's interesting that we didn't know that, back then but what's interesting is in the video for shandy uh peter's in it which is funny of course and there's a point right after like right before the the last choruses where there's this big big drum fill by anton fig and in the video peter just hams it up like he's obviously like trying to like sell it like hey i'm playing this you know, I think that, that might be more of a, nod, a wink to the audience than anything on the album
1: cover. It could be true, because he definitely knew coming in that this would be his last time with the group. Oh, yeah. I mean, now, as far as the song itself is, I like the song.
0: You know, obviously, at that point in time, with my kind of disdain for it, I probably didn't give it much regard. But there's a song on the album, and we'll get to it later, that has had all my disdain for the album, you know, singled out in that one song. But I like the song now. I enjoy it. It's, it's a good pop song. Uh, it really didn't do much for them in terms of chart success. I don't know what the, the chart numbers were, but I you know I don't think it made the top. I know it didn't make the top 10. Pro- it may not have even made the top 40, but it was not a big hit.
1: Unmasked um, apparently topped out at number 35, the album that is, on the Billboard charts. It's listed as gold. The truth of the matter, it was probably pre-ordered gold, as everything that KISS released at that time was. As far as, you know, it's shipping gold. Did it sell gold? That's something we'll never know. Um, the fact that it topped out at number 35, uh, usually records that top out that low don't usually go gold. But then again, pre-order is everything, I suppose. The single, on the other hand, I don't believe charted or didn't get much past the, the lower hundred.
0: Yeah, you're probably right. And I, I think I read, it might have been in uh, the Casablanca book by uh, Larry Harris, uh, that those practices eventually led to the recording industry changing its rules. Like pre-orders, I think, after a certain point didn't count. You actually had to sell uh, 500000 but... The funny thing about 500,000 is back then, and it still is, it's, that's a record. And for a gold record, that's pretty good. That's half a million copies. But if your last album sold you know, two million copies or even a million, the record company, especially Polygram, which was very, very corporate, in contrast to Casablanca, they look at it as, well, your sales are down 50% or your sales are down 75%, so there's something wrong here.
1: Absolutely, and, and plus KISS being such a costly operation in the first place, I mean, I, they were kind of a spendthrift operation. Their Sage Show was outrageously costly. Um, their touring entourage was gigantic. I mean, they, they had more cost per day than most groups spend in a month. So, yes, they absolutely needed to have million sellers. Each and every time, just to cover the cost of, of touring, of, of, of existing on a day-to-day basis.
0: Right, and of course, you know their timing though was perfect though, because if this album had come out and then Neil Bogart had left, they would not have been in in the position to leverage uh, a, the deal that they got with PolyGram. Apparently, from all accounts, they got a very good deal from PolyGram, even though Peter was leaving because I guess officially, uh, per the 1980 contract. Kiss was legally Gene, Paul, and Ace. But if that had happened a year later, Kiss might not have left Casablanca, or they would certainly wouldn't have negotiated such a great, a good contract.
1: That's very true. Um, which leads us on to the third track, which is "Talk to Me," and the transition there is talk to me and let's talk about a hundred million dollar contract
0: well of course once again as on dynasty you know ace really stepped up and he really came to the party with some songs i mean my a friend of mine said that uh, dynasty was uh ace's coming out party and he's absolutely right and he's he's just as strong on this album in fact probably stronger because in the sense that uh, the three songs on on Mast, he wrote all of them, which was not the case on Dynasty, you know, the Two Thousand Man cover. But I like this song, you know, it's it's definitely a pop song, and Ace, you know, was able to write something that fit that bill, and it, you know, it it sits well alongside the other tracks. And uh, I'm an Ace guy, so I'm always gonna say good stuff about Ace, you know, unless it's you want to talk about, you know, his last album or something like that.
1: <laughs> well, this is this is the album where Ace kind of reveals his sort of again it, it's power pop but it's a very different kind of power pop than is that you it's much more sort of like sweet runaways Joan Jett kind of stuff if in fact if you blink it basically is a Joan Jett number
0: you know I never thought about that but you might be onto something there I'd have to think about that and I'll do that once we start re- stop recording because if I stop to think now this is going to be a five-hour show and nobody wants to listen to that
1: anyhow it's a good one I like all the songs so far, although I guess so far... Talk to Me is my favorite. It's not his um his most brightest lyrical contribution, but uh music-wise it's pretty good. It's always it's always listenable.
0: Actually, lyric-wise it's going to get worse for Ace, but we'll 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 deal with that a little ways down the
1: down the pike. That's very true. Get City. Gene's high point on this record for sure and probably actually no, I take that back. It's my second favorite Gene song on the album.
0: Well, it's definitely my favorite Gene song on the album, and it's my favorite song on the album, period. I I think it's got a great riff. I think it's the closest thing they have to a real heavy song on this album. In fact, I read years ago, I read an interview with Bob Kulick where he was kind of bitching. I know that's a surprise. That the album, he felt the song should have had a much heavier production and that the production on the mass undid it. But I think, if anything, it kind of recalls the kiss of earlier albums where there's kind of a a nice heavy riff. And what's interesting, if you listen to it, it also incorporates a little bit of reggae into it. It's subtle, but if you listen closely, it's there.
1: That's true. It's a little bit of police. It's also a little bit of Christopher Cross. Well, yes,
0: they were sailing past, uh, you know, the pop graveyard at that point. So, but dum bum
1: Needed to ride like the wind to get past it.
0: Well... If that's the best that you can do, I think we should probably just, uh, you know, move on.
1: Uh, we might move on to a subject of um, more philosophical depth and quality. Um, you know, I've been wondering lately, what, what does make the world go round? Well,
0: apparently it's love, and this song will teach you that love is not only does not only make the world go round, but it's apparently smart.
1: That's true, and apparently it
0: moves to a Motown beat, because there's a whole lot of Supremes in this song. You know, it's funny, when I first heard podcast do their show about this album, they pointed out, like, the whole Motown thing, and when I listened to this song, I'm like, oh my god, and the chorus is singing, whenever I want you, whenever, you know, I want to hold you, and they're, repeat, they're doing, like, that kind of repeating thing, the call and response thing, I thought, that's Motown, and I could actually, when they do that, I can almost picture the Temptations doing that with the hand gestures, you know what I'm talking about?
1: Oh, yeah, the whole, yeah. Swirling around at the microphone, clapping in the whole nine yards. I can definitely see that. It is that kind of song. It's a. It's. Of all the songs on this side, this one, of course, is the furthest departure from, you know, Cold Gin, Black Diamond, Hotter Than Hell. And if anything, this is probably the one that drew the most wrath from the hardcore fans.
0: Yeah, I could see that because it it definitely. It's definitely something that, even for this album. It's kind of lightweight. I I like it myself. I I enjoy the song, but I could definitely see where someone would listen to this and go, "What the hell is this?" You know, and back then, you know, like I said, when I was going through my betrayal phase because I thought Kiss had let me down by doing a pop album, this this might have been part of it. I you know I don't remember.
1: Well, that's a comparison. Think about what the Doobie Brothers were going through at the time. It is essentially a Motown tribute. You can pretty much picture them dancing, you know, with the hand gestures and spinning around the microphone. A lot of ooh and ah. It's very much like a combination of, like, Temptations and Spinners and Supremes. It's an R&B kind of song. And it's definitely not the kind of song that Kiss fans were expecting. It's definitely not Black Diamond. It's not Cold Gin. It's not Nothing to Lose. It's a straight-up late-70s take on Motown.
0: Right, and the funny thing about it is there's actually a video for this song. Now, it's not one where they actually recorded a lip-sync for it. It's just they took footage from the Australian tour, and it's one of those videos where when Paul's singing, they just show footage of him singing another track, and they try to match it up as best they can. But, you know, I guess I think that was probably done for the international market because I didn't see it until... 96 on a unmasked VHS uh, compilation. Remember those?
1: Yeah. It is the track that more than anything reveals the essential disconnect between the image of Kiss and the music they were putting out.
0: Well, in a way it doesn't, because if you look at the the video, they're wearing those Dynasty outfits. Obviously, Paul's is a little different, because Paul liked to change his outfit from tour to tour, but they're wearing those kind of glammy, Vegas style outfits. So I I don't think it's that much of a disconnect. I think if they were wearing say the 76 costumes or the 77 costumes, then you'd it would be more of a disconnect. That's just my take on it.
1: Well, again though, that kind of proves that they were kind of slowly distancing, distancing themselves from their original audience. They are getting more Vegasy. It is becoming more polished and family friendly. And songs like What Makes the World Go Round kind of do reflect that. And also, as you say, the outfit changes also reflect that. Side two, track one, Tomorrow. Um,
0: As I said before, this album was an album where I was going, this is pop crap. And no song was more of a lightning rod than this one. I hated this song with a red-hot passion. Uh, I just thought it was sappy, you know, we're going to fall in love. And it also reminded me of the song from Annie, which I hated as well. So, you know, I don't hate it now, but back then, oh, my God, it was just get me away from this song.
1: It is very it is very rinky dink, roller rink, roller skating kind of thing, isn't it? It's very sugary. It's bubblegummy, And it kind of does have that association. I don't hate it now,
0: you know. I know a lot of people like it, and you know that's all well and good. We're all entitled to our own opinions, but it's still one of my lesser tracks on this album. It may not be the my least favorite track, but it's probably near the bottom.
1: It's kind of near the bottom for me. My absolute absolute least favorite track is on the side, and we'll get to it eventually. Uh, Tomorrow for me is not horrible by any means. I mean you don't come to kiss for any kind of lyrical depth or you no. know, any great any great philosophical associations, of course. But even even that being said, tomorrow is kind of suspiciously lightweight, even for Paul Stanley. But I'd still give it about a I I there's really no song in this record I hate except for one, but tomorrow probably does earn a C from me.
0: I would say C, maybe even a B minus. It, it It is a catchy song, and I can hear that now, but back then, I just didn't want to know. And uh, that just was my lightning rod, like I said, for not liking this album at the time.
1: It makes sense. There is a lot to like about this record, but a lot of what we like about this record is in retrospect. Let's put it that way.
0: Oh, it took me years before I began to really appreciate Unmasked for what it was, because I think back then I was a lot more rigid in terms of I like hard rock and power rock, and I don't want to listen to this bubblegum crap anymore,
1: you know. It did hit us all on the wrong side about lessons, didn't it? Especially right in the midst of that hormonal charge where you really, really don't want to hear tomorrow.
0: Right, I was 13, soon to be 14, so. Anything that didn't sound tough or manly or whatever, which is really ridiculous if you think about it when you're 13 years old because you're not even close to being a man. And, you know, and I'm hoping someday I actually get there. But until that time, you know, we, we just have to go on with our lives.
1: That's fair enough. I mean, we're hoping to leave childhood and emerge into maturity at some point. Um, but there's two sides of the coin to think about here, aren't there?
0: yes and and speaking of bad kiss lyrics this is definitely a song that is singled out by many fans as having really bad lyrics even for kiss in fact i think on pods and sods with uh, craig smith and eric miller hi guys i think they did an episode of their Analyze kiss series where they take a song and they break it down lyrically i think they did an episode just devoted to this song and if my memory serves me correct, those guys probably massacred it, especially Craig.
1: Well, you know, Craig, he just wants a whirl. Yeah. Some ladies, some girls.
0: <laughs> you like some women, you know. You like some girls, and you know, they just want a whirl. It's kind of funny. It's kind of sad. They're not really happy. They're just kind of glad. Okay, that is something. Even for Kiss, I, I you know, I, I'd rather listen to Burn, Bitch, Burn. Even that. Is more palatable, as bad as that is.
1: It's just a touch of pink, a cut of pink. It's a cut of pink. Big difference.
0: <laughs> we'll have to save that for our animalized show at some point down down the road.
1: Yeah, that that'll be coming to you right about uh, the twelfth. Never,
0: <laughs> never say never. But anyway, um, I like the song overall. It's I think it's, it's another pop ditty from Ace, and it's very. This is definitely courting the teen audience. This is this is Ace that's safe for teenage consumption, you know. And uh, what's interesting about this song is, for some reason, it is included on the um, 1970. I'm sorry, the 1997 Greatest Kiss album that came out in the USA. I can't figure out for the life of me why it's on a Kiss greatest hits album because it was not a hit, at least not in this country anyway.
1: Probably well, has something to do with the fact that Ace was drastically, as as you recall, as we all recall, drastically underrepresented on double platinum. Remember, the only thing he really had on that compilation was the intro to Rock Bottom. Actually, no, he wrote Cold Gin. But that was it. Out of out of twenty tracks, he had like one and a half. Yeah, and, and so that, it makes sense they throw him a bone on this one.
0: Well, I, it's still they could have had like. I don't know rocket ride or something like that. That would have made more sense to me, but because that was an actual single in the U.S. But anyway, getting back to the song, what do you what are your thoughts about on the song uh, Two Sides of the Coin?
1: It's another great um, Joan Chat rocker. It's, <laughs> it's very much it's very much you know Bad Reputation era Joan
0: you're right that was actually around that time when she was just emerging as a solo artist and through sheer coincidence and you know the whole six degrees of separation thing uh she was on boardwalk records in the united states and boardwalk was the short-lived label that was started by neil bogart after he left casablanca
1: that's true boardwalk was his golden parachute
0: yeah unfortunately he just didn't live to see um the album the label have greater success i think. Joan Jett had "I Love Rock and Roll," but we're digressing. Let's, let's get let's get back to um
1: let's get back to the Kiss. Well, you know, digressing that's a digression, isn't that isn't that like an ethnic description? Um, could that be a sort of European description? Well, it could be.
0: You know, the fact that we're doing a, a, a podcast about old albums. You know, there was a uh, Donald Fagan once said at a Steely Dan concert. Uh, that nostalgia is a mild form of depression and i i kind of think there's some truth to that to that saying that's good
1: i don't think she's so much depressed as she is screaming in fact is that her screaming
0: i think you're th- thinking towards the next song and
1: um, we've moved on to she's so european
0: i guess we have interestingly enough that song uh i had an ex-girlfriend i have an ex-girlfriend who was from Who was from Finland originally. She wasn't really a big Kiss fan. She kind of tolerated my interest in it to a certain degree. But she liked She's So European just solely for the fact that she was European. And uh, so, you know, it gave us something to c- connect with in terms of Kiss.
1: Uh, hopefully you were smooching during the lyrical part so she didn't catch any of them. Uh, I'm not going to comment on that. Because it's not the most not necessarily the most complimentary song there are some lines in there that nowadays probably cannot feature without a a, a certain amount of controversy
0: well he's basically dissing her saying she's a phony and that she's so european because she spent a weekend in Saint tropez or something like that and her parents are still away and you realize he's just pissing all over this girl but of course back in 1980 i was 13 years old so you hear a song called she's so european and you take it at face value
1: yeah it's there were rumors that it was directed toward people you know as diverse as bianca jagger or yoko ono or other famous you know jet setters of the time
0: it could very well be i mean consider that at the time he was dating either Cher or diana ross it might have been a transition phase And both of them are world travelers, so, you know, he, for all we know, he could have been dissing one of them and just doing it in a way that they wouldn't pick up on it.
1: Or Donna Summer, even.
0: Yeah, well, actually, Donna Summer was kind of European in a way, because she lived in Europe for several years. She was actually, when she signed to Casablanca, she was living in Germany, and they had to bring her over from the States. In fact, they had to bring over, like, anyway, we're getting, again, I'm digressing, but she was actually over in Europe, and... That, that'd that be another – we have to do, at some point, a Casablanca show.
1: Yeah, I'd be into that. All the stories, the Larry Harris stories.
0: That book alone I, – but I will say this. If we're going to do a Casablanca show, you need to read that.
1: I'll be glad to read it.
0: You won't be sorry. It it, it It's a very balanced portrait. Even though he was uh, Neil Bogart's cousin and his second-in-command, he doesn't hold back. He tells some – some fairly unflattering stuff about him. He says some a lot of nice things about him, too. You can tell he had a conflicted relationship with him, especially towards the end. But anyway, we'll talk about that down the road. She's so European. It's okay. It's, you know, it's it is what it is. It's um it's not the best song in the album, but it's not the worst song either. It's just it's a decent enough song. It chugs along, and this is really where you start to hear the presence of keyboards. What I'd like to know is who played keyboards on this album? I know Holly Knight did it on Shandy, but I'm curious, I mean I'm gonna guess it was some session player.
1: Let's see, um Holly Knight and Vinny Ponce are both credited with keyboards. Which is interesting.
0: Yeah, it could have been Vinny because Vinnie was, you know, Vinny was a producer and obviously a musician, and you know, he had worked uh, he produced Ringo Starr, from what I understand, and I believe he was a protege of Richard Perry. Richard Perry, of course, was a huge pop producer in the '70s, and most notably, uh, Carly Simon was one of his big acts. So, obviously, you get a guy like that; he's gonna produce a pop album, and he's gonna play pop keyboards, if that's what he did.
1: Yeah, they are very, they are very Funky Town, aren't they? Yes,
0: and that was, and, and again, same year, Funky Town came out in 1980 casablanca it was also riding that cusp of disco and new wave it was a disco song but it had like a new wave kind of uh edge to it
1: heart of glass
0: even beyond that it was it was i think like i think funky town is completely done by one guy i think it's like just one guy a keyboard and a drum machine and he probably brought in you know backup singers
1: for it well yeah the one chick that actually sings the song but yeah she's so european um is riding, as you say the cost of disco and new wave um alice cooper had an album out around this time that also was filled with a lot of material that does the same thing uh flush the fashion yep
0: and now knowing what we know about alice now he was not in a good he was not in a good way i mean I'm, i'm talking more personally than musically musically you know he was okay But if you look at if you look at pictures from that period, he was not doing well. But that again, we'll have to save that for an Alice Cooper podcast.
1: It's just not as easy as it seems, you know.
0: And with that segue, we go into our next song, Easy As It Seems. You know, for an album that's kind of been lighthearted for the most part, even Paul's stuff. This is where it starts to get a little dark. Uh, This is definitely not a happy, upbeat song
1: no this is very much a, a sort of a relationship breakup 101 kind of lament um, you have to wonder if this is sort of like a put message toward um someone, let's say uh donna dixon for example
0: no that was a couple of years later uh he may have been dating um Cher's sister at this point i know he did for a while but you know i i think if you read paul's book you knew that A lot of his relationships tended not to last, and it wasn't always because of the girl, but I'm sure from his point of view, he saw it differently.
1: That's true. Those evil LaPierre sisters, they'll kiss you every time. (laughs) Especially when you have a star child.
0: Yeah, yeah, and let's face it, you know, that's when he was at the peak of his being a star child. I mean, you know, 1980, he was coming off this, you know, incredible two- or three-year run where Kiss was the biggest thing on the Planet Earth, but as we all know at this point, they were starting to uh, plummet towards Earth, even if they didn't realize it.
1: That's true. The color forms were falling off the spectrum.
0: Yeah, that's so true. I mean, you know, it's like everything else. What what goes up must come down. And I think the problem with Kiss is that because of the way they merchandise themselves and the way that they, put, you know, position themselves as almost like this kind of cartoonish superhero band. I think it made it doubly worse or triply worse.
1: Low saturation is always a hazard. When you transform into a cartoon show, you you do have to accept that cartoon shows have an average of two or three seasons if they're lucky.
0: Right. And, you know, let's face it, the American public's, you know, attention span is, you know, not the greatest. I mean, people are fickle. I mean, in this country, we love to build people up, but we, even more so, we like to take them down.
1: That's very true. And and when you start delving into the realms of ephemeral pop, a.k.a., you know, who would you even compare this song to? It's kind of like somewhere between Pablo Cruz, um, the Dupree brothers, something like the Pointer Sisters. It's very perky. It's very disco-y. It's very commercial. And yet it's very, very not Kiss.
0: True. Now, ephemeral pop, wasn't he a punk uh, rock singer of some kind? Didn't he, you know, associate with David Bowie and Lou Reed?
1: Somewhere back there in the DeBriest days, yes.
0: (laughs) But, yeah, getting back to the song, this is, I have to say, I like this song a lot. I think, you know, it's one of those songs that maybe I couldn't appreciate when I was younger. But now that I'm older, I can appreciate the sentiment. I think musically it's one of the more sophisticated songs on the album um from what i understand and i forget where i heard this i think it's paul that plays bass on this in fact i suspect that paul i know that ace played bass on all of his songs and that'll definitely play into it on the next track but uh i think paul may have played the bass i mean let's face it it was 1980 who knew who was playing bass on you know paul's material
1: Unmasked is very much like the white album in the sense that it is three converging solo albums playing out on the same slab of vinyl.
0: Right. But I don't think this album quite rises to the level of the white album. And the white album is, 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 uh, is very uneven. I mean, it's, I love it, but I'm one of those people and I'm probably going to catch hell for saying this. I think the white album could have been condensed down. to a really killer single album, but that's for another, that's another podcast.
1: That's true. Anyway, I, I, kind of let's see how i describe the song it's a very very good michael mcdonald style pointer sisters perky pop disco number it's very very 1980 it's very very not kiss but it's with a whip of nostalgia to it it is passable in retrospect
0: you know that here comes the michael mcdonald thing again and it's interesting because at the time I didn't really hear that but you know then again I I mean I knew obviously who Michael McDonald was I knew of the Doobie Brothers but I think as you get older you start to hear the influences or what might have been influenced at the time and let's face it Vinny Poncia as I've said before he's a pop producer he's going to be listening for material that he thinks is going to get on the charts I mean pop producers are always always trying to find singles they're always trying to find material that can get on the charts not that this was not that this was issued as a single but you know he was probably thinking along those lines just a guess on my part
1: almost every track on this album in some form or another could have been a single
0: yeah i mean i was i forget you know talk to me was a single in australia because it's i believe it's on the europe i mean the australian version of the kiss killers album that's true but maybe it's yeah. the only
1: track from this album. Well, maybe Shandy. I believe those are the only two tracks that represent Killers, that represent unmasked on that particular compilation.
0: And Shandy, to, as far as I know, that only appears on the Japanese version of Killers because I I bought that in the late '80s, and you know back then that was when like an imported Japanese CD was, you know, thirty bucks in 1989 money. So yeah, I mean it's. Because I I have the German version of it, and Shandy's not on there.
1: That's interesting. It makes sense, though. Different playlists playlists for different markets. Kiss would be all all over that kind of arrangement.
0: I remember the first time I heard of a Greatest Hits album having different track configurations in different countries. It was the first Queen Greatest Hits album from 1981. But then you realize, yeah, they have different hits in different countries. So it wouldn't make sense to have a one Greatest Hits fits all kind of Configuration.
1: Well, Scorpions have German language hits compilations, and ABBA definitely has different um, configurations in different countries.
0: ABBA's recorded has re-recorded songs in
1: Spanish. That's true. They've recorded entire albums in Swedish.
0: Well, yeah. Well, being that you know the um, Swedish is their first language, it's probably a you know a thing. But we'll have to save that for our ABBA podcast, and if we do that, we'll have to bring on Craig Smith from pods and sods
1: Craig and megan i'd like to see those two together again
0: they just did one recently they did a um one of their monkeys podcasts i believe they still do the show every now and then it's just i I think he's so preoccupied with the book that he's not uh doing as many he's still actually doing podcasts but anyway getting back to kiss
1: that's true we can't keep cruising the hot streets all night but i'm bummed that's an in joke for the kids
0: well, you know, if you keep making jokes like that, you're just going to torpedo this podcast.
1: Oh, geez. Go Let's ahead. not get torpedoed, girls.
0: And with that, we're going to go into our next track, our second-to-last song, Torpedo Girl, written and performed by Ace Fraley. And written and performed by Ace Fraley is definitely the thing, the key here, because like his solo album, he's performing guitar, bass, and, uh, of course, Anton figures on the drums. I like you said. This is like the the Beatles' White Album. I don't even know if any other member of Kiss appears on it, other than maybe backing vocals.
1: I don't even think Gene and Paul are on the backing vocals. I can't pick out their voices.
0: I remember going to see Ace Frehley in 1994 at a, literally at a bar in the town in the city I was living in at the time, uh, Lowell, Mass. And he did Torpedo Girl, and that was a pleasant surprise. I like this song. It's goofy, but you can definitely tell it's not Gene on the bass. When you hear that opening uh, bass riff, where he's going boom, 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 it's, it's the funky. It's Gene has never played a funky. Well, I I shouldn't say that. Detroit Rock City is a pretty funky bass riff, but he's never played one this funky. I mean, this is like the type of bass riff you'd, you'd hear on a Steely Dan album.
1: It is very sort of Sly Stone-ish, isn't it? Ohio players. It's got that ringing quality to it. it's it's, it's a little step away from slap.
0: Yeah, basically. I mean, it's it's Ace Frehley getting down and getting funky with his bad self, and you know, it's a goofy song. But I do love the the intro with the with the um, spoken voice over the loudspeaker, and it's kind of like skips and repeats itself. You know, it's just it's Ooh, yeah. Of, yeah, exactly. Uh, thank you for that, Mark. And yeah. it's a good song. It's it's you know, I like it better than um, two sides of the coin. I think. Once again, Ace came to the party loaded, and I don't mean in the sense that most people would think he was. I mean, loaded with songs.
1: It was maybe a bit of both, but he carried the day.
0: Yes, and this would you know, this would also be kind of Ace's last hurrah, so to speak. I mean, he would have a song on the next album, but it was kind of done under duress, and we'll get into that next year when we do our music from the Elder Anniversary show.
1: The Malevolent Order is waiting for us.
0: Oh, yeah. <laughs> I like the song. I think it's 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 a lot of fun. It's definitely fitting in terms of the musical style of this album, which is you know pop. And um, I don't know what I don't really have much more to say about it. I don't Mark, you have any thoughts on it?
1: It's fluffy. It's light. It's bouncy. It's very Eugene. It's again, it's very 1980. And it's a bit slight and inconsistent, but it's fun. And it's a good way to end the album. Unfortunately, there is one more track.
0: Right, but I do want to, before we get on to that song, I just want to mention that when you said light and fluffy, you reminded me of uh, a Frank Zappa song, uh, St. Alfonso's, Pancake Breakfast, where there's a lyric, they're so light and fluffy white, they're so light and fluffy white.
1: What's the other one, Hot Plate Heaven at the Holiday Inn?
0: I'm not familiar with that one, but I... It sounds like a Frank Zappa song.
1: Frank Zappa has an astonishing amount of songs about food.
0: I think Frank Zappa just would write about anything, you know, any thought that went into his head. And the funny thing is, is he can get away with it. I, there's just some, for some reason, he can pull it off. He can write a song about toenail fungus, and it would be, you know, the greatest thing you'd ever heard.
1: That's true. It's it's, a, it's an ode to the pajama people of the world.
0: Right. And we'll have to talk about that on our Frank Zappa episode. But
1: we the last will, song is, Excuse me? I'll say we will, though. That's, that's a great topic, actually. That, that,
0: that could be a series unto itself.
1: And um, now we have to get on to the last song, which may be all that you want. I'm not sure it's all that I want. But in any case, it's your role that I want.
0: You know, it's for Gene, it's kind of a eh song. It's not a terrible song. But it's not really that great. It's just sort of like Gene. I, I think he might have been still with Cher at the time, or maybe with Diana Ross. And I, he said in his book that Cher was the first time he ever really fell in love with someone. So maybe he wrote this thinking about her. But it's definitely not in keeping with Mr. You know, love him and leave him. Christine sixteen, calling Doctor Love. You know that kind of thing. Ladies in waiting. This is the demon like tamed. He's he's not on the prowl. He's declaring his love for someone.
1: There is one classic line: "You need to feel my love inside you." That's, that's true. really about it.
0: Yeah. And the funny thing is, is when you're 13 years old, like I was, you don't really pick up on that. You just you you just go to hear it, but you don't really understand it. And it's like, yeah, I feel my love inside you. Of course, you're right. He does have to get the genism in, but. It's okay, and this song actually appears in demo form on the Kiss box set under the title "You're All That I Want, You're All That I Need," and it's it's basically acoustic on the um on the on the box set, but it's kind of like he sounds like he's half asleep when he's recording it. The the demo, I mean.
1: It has kind of um. Who were the kind of power pop groups that were doing numbers like that? It's a little more electric than something. The little River Band would do, but it has that same kind of quality. The chorus is very reminiscent of something they would do, or or maybe the Babies. It's got that very commercial chorus, but there's just not a lot of substance.
0: No, it, it kind of ends the album like on a on a kind of like a thud, not a not like a a total disaster, but sort of like anticlimactic, especially after um, Easy as It Seems and um, torpedo girl Uh, torpedo girl thank you yeah it's it's just sort of like okay but i also think it's indicative of the fact that gene was writing to order this is a pop album you know people have commented on other podcasts how they didn't feel that on dynasty he he quite got it and i and i believe that so this is gene doing pop and let's face it gene had done pop songs long before Kiss. Even if you've, like I said, if you've ever heard Lita from the box set or Stanley the Parrot, he's a master at mimicking styles.
1: That's true. My uncle's a raft. My mother's the most beautiful woman in the world.
0: Yeah, he's not a mama's boy, is he?
1: No, he's just a Beatles fan.
0: Well, Le- you, you can definitely hear that on Lita. Lita is like the most transparent Beatles pastiche I've ever heard.
1: It is very beatly. It's very. Yeah. Gene had a – I don't know how to describe it. It is very sort of – it's Rubber Soul Paul mixed with Pop John.
0: Yeah, I, and I think – and the funny thing is next year is the 20th anniversary of the box set. Maybe like next year we'll we'll do a 20th anniversary of the box set and we'll review the the unreleased tracks or the rare tracks from that. Obviously, we're not going to go through track by track because it would be a seven-hour
1: podcast. That's true. Overall, I think um, you're all that I want. It's definitely my least favorite song on the album, and as you said, it does kind of end things on an anticlimactic note. Um, if the positions had been reversed, if Torpedo Girl had ended the album, it would be a far more satisfactory finale, I think.
0: It would be a much more upbeat finale. You'd you'd walk away from the album feeling like, you know, hey, that's that's upbeat. That's got some you know some some kick to it, some jazz. But this is just like. You know, like, I don't know, the, the post-mortem or something like that, or, you know, like, uh, I was going to say The Last Resort on Hotel California, but that's a much, even though it's a slow song, it's a very dramatic ending. This is just, okay, here's my here's my third song. Um, I, I'm in love with this woman. Uh, is it time to go? Can we, you know, go to the disco now or something like that?
1: It is kind of like, you know, Sunday morning, recovering from United Studio 54, and just kind of like, bleh. You have bad breath. You've got an alcohol hangover, and you're just like, Ugh, put something on that's not too dark, not too light, not too hot, not too cold, not too and rock.
0: This could be um, this could be like a yacht rock song.
1: A, a very listless, lacking energy kind of yacht rock song. It's more like a baby's type of song to, to my ears.
0: You know, it's interesting that, like, Vinnie Poncia, and I'm, I'm assuming that Vinnie Poncia sequenced the album because most producers tend to supervise the final mixing and sequencing. Um, I, I question, you know, whether or not th- this could have been, like, the second-to-last song or maybe it could have been on the middle of – even if if this had an album in with She's So European or Naked City, would have been better, but it is it is what it is.
1: There are times when you need three minutes and 15 seconds to balance the times out on both sides of an album.
0: You're right, because back then, you know, the vinyl was the the standard format, and you you know, you didn't want to go more than uh, twenty minutes aside. Although that was never really much of an issue for Kiss, most of their albums clocked in under forty minutes. I mean, this album probably clocked in a little over because it was eleven tracks, but even so, you know, it probably wasn't that much over twenty minutes. But I'd have to look at the uh, the CD or the, for the track times, and I'm not doing that.
1: It's true. It was an inspired move. I personally think that the record should probably end with tomorrow uh, being sort of like, you know, check us out. We're coming back. We'll be back tomorrow. There's more to come, that kind of thing. Right. It would be a, it would be a lot less anticlimactic.
0: Yeah, tomorrow would have given it a little more of a hopeful kind of um, finale, whereas You're All That I Want is just almost like this wow. happened. Way of saying, yeah, I love you, okay, Uh, you know, let's let's go to bed or whatever.
1: Well, it also kind of sends a bad message in that, you know, you're all that I want. Well, you've heard the entire album. This is all we want. This is all we need. We can pretty much stop here. I still say they stink. Yeah,
0: and apparently the American public did, because as we discussed before, this album was not a big seller, and as a result, for the first time ever, Kiss did not tour in support of an album in the U.S.
1: Very strange, that. I'm not even sure that a lack of touring was intentionally justified i think that they could have done a summer tour at the very least i think it was definitely an overreaction well the good thing was
0: at least eric carr did make his debut in the united states in new york's in new york at the uh palladium because it would have kind of felt anticlimactic if a new york band who hired a new york drummer you know, ha- debuted him to Australia or wherever. I don't know if they went, to, I didn't know if they went to Australia first. They might've gone to France or Italy, but you know what
1: I'm, you know what I'm getting at. Right. the Famous Australian tour where kids were on top of the world at the bottom of the world.
0: Yeah. And that was like, their kind of like their last hurrah in terms of the, of the makeup era.
1: That's true. But,
0: you know, the only thing, the only one I want to discuss before we wrap this up is, uh, did you see them on Kids Are People 2 in the fall of 1980?
1: Yes, I did, actually. That is the first time that I saw Eric Carr. Um, that in the People magazine article, if you recall that. I,
0: st- I think I still have that People magazine somewhere in a box. I, I, pro- I, I probably still have
1: it. Rich, raunchy, but not so repulsive.
0: Right. And, you know, it was interesting because they were still covering their faces or, you know, turning their back to the camera. Mm-hmm. But, um, you know, like I said, it was interesting. The Kids Are People 2 thing was interesting because it was a new guy and, you know, it was a big unveiling. It's interesting that they appeared on a show like that. I think it goes to show you how their popularity had fallen. I don't think they would have done a show like that a
1: year prior, especially
0: a show that was aimed at kiddies. That was a Sunday morning show. Well, if you recall,
1: they did do a 3 to one Contact the year before during the Dynasty tour. I think okay. that their audience was moving toward kids, and plus, you know, the color form sets, the Halloween mask, and I kind of do tend to think that that was always part of Bill of Coins' mass merchandising strategy. I think that it skewed quite a bit younger than some of the members of the band were prepared for. Speaking of
0: that, there was an interesting thing that I read one time. It was, it was an interview with Bill Occoyne where he said, and he might have just been saying this to to make a sensational copy. He wanted he wanted Eric Carr to wear the Catman makeup. But apparently Peter was still part of the organization and, you know, still controlled his makeup, so they didn't do that. And I thought about it, I'm like, if they had done that in 1980, the fan base would not have stood for it, in my opinion. It's very
1: interesting. It really caught me off guard there. I'm not sure how I would have felt about that. I definitely think that Eric Carr definitely needed his own makeup design. He was not Peter Criss in any way, shape, or form. They debuted no. him with a double kit.
0: Right. He was more of a John Bonham-type drummer, whereas Peter had that jazzy swing kind of feel to his drumming which kind of made him very distinctive in the early days and was kind of a, an asset to them whereas eric carr was definitely more of a straightforward john bonham heavy hitting drummer and that will become very apparent a uh, couple of albums from
1: now that's very true I, I think they definitely traded up to get eric carr it's a shame oh. that he's not on this album but anton fig is very good the funny
0: thing about it, though, is that Eric Carr and Bruce Kulick had one thing in common in that they were not Kiss fans prior to joining the band. I mean, they were aware of Kiss, obviously, but they were not following the band and they weren't. I don't think they were buying Kiss albums. You know, Eric Carr even said this like in an interview they did on Australia for Countdown. And, you know, of course, he told them, oh, you guys are great. You you know, whatever. He told them what they wanted to hear to get in. And you can't blame the guy. The guy was trying to get a was trying to secure himself a gig,
1: and it worked. Well, he was working as a um, what was it, a microwave repairman an oven repairman,
0: uh, stove stove repairman, oven repairman.
1: Um, yeah, so I mean that's quite a that's quite a step up from you know blue collar life in Queens.
0: Well, as I understood, and I and I may have read this in Dale Sherman's book Black Diamond, but I believe it was down to him and Bobby Rondinelli as to who was going to get the drum seat. Now, Bobby Rondinelli wouldn't would would uh, wouldn't do too badly himself. Uh, the following year or the year after that, he joined Rainbow, Richie Blackmore's Rainbow. Uh, but I, I think it came down to they just liked Eric better personally. I think he he was a lot – like he was a very friendly guy, a real nice guy, and then they just responded to that. I mean Paul Stanley said he was like a kid brother, and this is the
1: thing. Eric Carr is a year older than Paul Stanley. Mm-hmm. But he was, of course, more naive in the ways of the world.
0: Yeah, yeah. And if you've read any of the books about Kiss or Eric Carr, there's kind of a sad undertone to that. But we'll we'll talk about that some other time. Why don't we wrap this up and uh, give our thoughts on Unmasked. And, uh, Mark, I'll let you get the ball rolling on this one.
1: Well, as we discussed earlier, it is kind of like the last hurrah of the makeup era. Many people see it as the beginning of the end. It went gold rather than platinum it hit number 35 on the charts and a lot of people felt that kiss were basically racking things up at this point
0: well for me the beginning of the end was if you look back on it, it was it was really the solo albums that was 1978 you know the solo albums kiss meets the phantom the merchandising that was really the undoing of kiss and this album was really just another step in their unraveling uh, you know a lot of people have speculated would this album have done better if it had been a hard rock album it might have but in all honesty i think the backlash against kiss was so strong that they could have put out you know led zeppelin 4 at this point and the audience the general audience wouldn't have heard it
1: kiss were always a pop band at heart even when they were at their loudest you know the songs were very don't bore us let's get straight to the chorus Ace had classic guitar interludes, but there were no long jams. Kiss was always a very straightforward, radio-ready, condensed pop experience, whether or not radio programmers realize that or not.
0: True, very true. And you know, in all honesty, I think that their very first heavy metal album was Creatures of the Night. I mean, that's that's an album where I think they became a metal band or at least for that album, they were a metal band. I mean, I think they kind of reverted to being hard rock with some of the latest stuff, but Unmasked definitely found them doing pop. And, you know, I like I said, at the time it came out, I didn't like it. Now I can appreciate it for being a, a, a well-crafted pop album that I actually prefer over Dynasty.
1: I would have to agree with you there. <clears throat> Dynasty almost seems compromised in a few half measures in places, They want to still keep some of that heavy rock aura that Ace brought, and at the same time they want to add this new pop sheen, whereas Unmask goes whole hog with the pop, naturally you alienate a lot of the old hard rock fans, but it was definitely a bid to get on, you know, to appeal to a brand new audience of fans, which unfortunately, because of the makeup, kind of never were willing to get on board. The fact that the Casablanca Empire was collapsing at the seams around 1980.
0: Well, as far as I'm concerned, once Neil Bogart walked out the door in February of 1980, it stopped being Casablanca. It just became, Casablanca just became another imprint um, subsidiary of PolyGram Music. I, I don't really think it had the same cachet anymore without Bogart. And like I said, we've, like we said before, we've really got to, you've got to read the, uh, the Larry Harris book and we've got to sit down and do a Casablanca show. And, you know, I think on that one we can, we'll, we'll, we'll have to mention, we'll have to mention Kiss in passing, but I think we really want to focus on Donna Summer and the Village People and maybe some of the one and done artists that they had or the none and done artists that they
1: had. Mm -hmm. Sean Delaney's very short lived solo career among others. I never
0: even knew he had an album out until, you know, maybe like the 90s, but. But anyway, I think um I think that's I think I've said all I have to say about
1: unmasked. How about you, Mark? I think we've pretty much summed it up. It's a moment in time. It's what people would regard as sort of a cul-de-sac in the kiss catalog. But it's definitely not one of its charms, especially if you're if you're of a certain age.
0: That's very true. And with that, I think we'll say that this wraps up
1: the very first
0: episode of the K and K super show. We hope you like it. If you like it, let us know. If you don't like it, let us know. We're going to have a Facebook page where you can post comments and whatever web configuration we have, you should be able to post them there as well. Um, Mark and I both have one thing in common besides this podcast. We both got our start in podcasting appearing on Podkist, which was the first Kiss podcast and is the, still the best Kiss podcast. And with that, I want to give a shout out to uh, Gary Schaller, Matt Porter, and of course, the pod father, Ken
1: Mills. Mills. Yeah. We love you you
0: guys. We love you guys. You know, you guys are still doing it all these years later and uh, nobody does. And as the, as you know, Carly Simon once said, nobody does it better. No offense, history science theater
1: over, over the next few episodes. We'll likely be going off in a plethora of different directions, but we did want to give a quick shout out to our origins and to say thank you to those who encouraged us and came before us.
0: Well, the funny thing is you appeared on podcast a few years ago to do their Unmasked show. I was invited to be a part of that, but due to um, prior commitments, I wasn't able to do it. I, I did get a little segment on there, but I had always wanted to do an Unmasked show, and now I've done it. So, you know, whatever happens after this, I've achieved my life's goal.
1: The mask is off. The bets are off. We're off the chain.
0: This is, uh, like I said, this is the... um double k super show i'm chris carrom
1: i'm mark konserowski
0: and we'll be back next time with something else the opinions expressed on the double k super show do not necessarily reflect those of the double k super show staff or any rational human being for that matter. the double k super show is a double k production all rights preserved